we always wondered why did Jerry Hutch not get charged maybe quicker and maybe some of these issues now are being played out in the court where there there is evidence there there is also legal complications how the court will view that we'll find out I suppose I'm Nicola Tallent and you're listening to Crime World a podcast about criminals drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe The fear that surrounded the aftermath of the Regency Hotel attack for those who'd been linked to the murder of David Byrne has been laid bare at the Special Criminal Court this week. Suspects Jason Bonney and Paul Murphy are both accused of providing the vehicles for the hit team that carried out the brazen shooting at a packed boxing weigh-in. They deny the charges and any involvement in the murder of Byrne, along with Jerry the Monk Hutch, who stands trial for the murder. As the trial continues, I'm talking with my colleague Niall Donald about the evidence about threats issued by the Kinnahan cartel in the weeks and months following the February 5th incident. About the professional boxers who've been named over the course of the trial. And about the impending legal battle surrounding issues around policing the Northern Irish border and secrets held behind the closed doors of elite Garda units. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Hope you enjoyed your two weeks off. I did, Nicola. Uh, didn't think about the monk, Daniel Kinnan, anybody. Uh, just, man, not that it was very exciting, you know me. I'm known as the most, the most boring man in Europe and all that. Imagine saying that about yourself. You're going to need to get some sort of a counselling or some sort of, you know, one of these. Um, well, life I said coaches. I'm known as the most boring man in Europe, but the reality oh. is, a, is obviously <laughs> quite, quite the exciting uh, individual. My reputation is undeserved. Anyway, I missed you. I have to say, I had to sort of babble on to myself a little bit, and Ian and. Alison O'Reardon stood in for you. She did very well there on Friday. You probably I, listened to that. I did, but the, yes, my, my uh, ability to waffle on any topic, no doubt, was, was, was missed on. So the silver fox is back. The silver fox is back. So, well, as you've been buzzing around doing nothing, I've actually been in and out of the trial. I had a bit of a disaster last week, but I was in now this week and... Um, It's like motoring forward in one way and at the same time you're kind of waiting for that meaty evidence which will come, uh, I suppose, when the we get evidence around the statements that Dowdall gave and obviously the main event is going to be Dowdall's evidence. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously two really key bits of evidence that'll that'll come up that'll be, I suppose, headline events in the trial. Um, there's the recordings, the voice recordings of uh, allegedly of Jerry Hutch and, and Jonathan Dowdle in the car. Are they going to be played? Are we going to hear them speak in their own words? And then there's obviously Jonathan Dowdle will have to come into court, be a witness and be cross-examined on the statement that we certainly know what's in the statement at this point, but he'll have to be cross-examined and present that in court. So those are going to be obviously blockbuster days. But in the meantime... We're getting a lot of the technical evidence of movements of cars, CCTV, obviously. Last week, there was a lot of uh, sort of 
evidence and I suppose warnings that there's going to be a big, huge sort of legal battlefield drawn up about the Northern Irish border. That's where the car that the monk was in with Dowdall when he allegedly uh, had this conversation with him, which is going to be played or, you know, is 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 the, the state certainly hope they're going to play it. So that evidence... Um, there's arguments around the car, whether the car had a tracking device on it, whether it travelled over the Northern Irish border and whether that was legal or not. So Brendan Grehan SC, who's representing Jerry Hutch, has basically laid out his, his plan to argue that and to try. And he's not really getting any answers, actually, is the point, because I did a piece at the weekend. I don't know whether you bothered your... I did. Reading I did. Us, did you? I absolutely. Yeah. Thoroughly enjoyed it as well. And I was just pointing out basically that this border issue is going to be, uh, you know, part of this legal battleground. But also the fact that there's these elite units in the Gardaí who are sort of all headed up, as far as my understanding is, by the Crime and Security Division, who are highly secretive. They'd be sort of what you might call the spooks in the regular world. Um, The guys who kind of place the bugs on the cars, who go around the surveillance teams um, and other elements of the guards, like the SDU, the Special Detective Unit, which was long in place to police the subversives, the IRA, etc. So they're all quite secretive and they operate almost, you know, on a, on a different plane than the rest of the guard. And they often would be, you know, if you talk to guards sometimes on investigations, they'd, also, they'd almost be almost critical that they aren't given the same information. They hold this all this information very tight within these elite units and the management structure there. So it seems to me from sitting there and from listening to the evidence last week that there was two very clear investigations going on after the Regency. One was the Ballymun investigation team who were trying to piece together what happened and who was involved. And then there was this other kind of investigation between the National Surveillance Unit and the SDU, etc. All obviously governed and managed, managed from above the police on the ground. But they were very adamantly out to get the weapons back. And whether or not they'd already a surveillance operation in place against some of these subversives involved or whether that was already in place by the PSNI, that is all very murky, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's a legacy of the troubles, I suppose, um, both to policing in the South and in the North of Ireland, both had intelligence agencies that collected information on subversive activities. So up in up in the north, you had MI5, which really operated separately to the RUC. And there, this has caused obviously huge levels of controversy as the as the conflict has 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 come to an end, because MI5 were at least a large part of their what they viewed their role as was collecting infor- collecting information, and um, rather than solving crimes that had occurred. So although it was never a start down in Ireland, you also had units that really operated separately looking into IRA activities. And part of that was developing intelligence. Um, In the north, you had MI5 collecting information that may have been used at the time to to solve crimes or even to stop crimes, but they wouldn't necessarily do that. They'd have informers and they'd keep running them on the basis that it's more important to collect intelligence. Things obviously in, in 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 down here were different, but there is a certain degree of separation between the units that were collecting the the 
the information on the on the IRA and other organisations like that. So there, that may be a legacy that that you're seeing played out. Um, it's very obviously complicated uh, when a police. Obviously, when we're talking about Jerry Hutch and Jonathan Dowdle allegedly being going across the border and meeting people, there is some agreements between the PSNI and the and the Gardaí. They obviously work away. But it's the, the obviously the legal issue is going to arise about once you go into another jurisdiction, which is a completely different legal jurisdiction, despite any um, agreements between the police forces. How will that play out? So yeah, it's it it does seem that there is a legacy issue there, and um, there's also different units of a police force. Some of them may feel that collecting intelligence is is you know, a, a primary importance. And it does, we always wondered why did Jerry Hutch not get charged maybe quicker and maybe some of these issues now are being played out in the court where there are, there is evidence there. There is also legal complications. How the court will view that, we'll find out, I suppose. Mm, and there is this kind of like, I mean, at the end of the day, what's what was being asked of the National Surveillance Unit officers, they had some of them claimed privilege and some of them didn't know. But I mean, they're obviously being directed and how they give evidence and where they claim privilege, right? So there's no doubt about that. But they're being asked, was there a tracker on the land cruiser? I mean, so what if there was a tracker? Why does the state think for a second that the rest of the world doesn't realise that they use trackers, that they use bugging devices, that they listen in on phones? Sure, we know this. Everybody knows this. The criminals know this. It was the same when the Anchor chat ha- happened in 2020. They got the information in that all the other police forces in Europe got and they kept it because they didn't want the criminals to know that the police could listen in on phones. But I mean, that is ridiculous in this day and age. Well, yeah, I mean, there is. So to give, I suppose, there a, a different view on that would be obviously privilege is something that the guards are claiming. What they are, I believe what they're saying really is that if we give information about our, for example, surveillance activities or security activities, this this is uh, going to diminish the state's ability to operate them. You could see, for example, that if they said they had let's just say ACME trackers, they use them, then that could be of information that would be of use to criminals. Well, we know we get the anti-ACME tracker device, but obviously the other issue, so they're claiming privilege, but they're claiming it in a very, very broad sense, which is even the denial of a tracker device, for example. And that becomes more complicated there's there's all it's always been the case that with, with with the guardi in this in the special criminal court that they would claim for example if they have an informer um they might say well this came from a human intelligence officer or human intelligence agent or whatever the term they use Yours, yeah. and the court would recognize that they can claim privilege on the name of the person and that that would be you know also put put somebody at risk and put also the, the function of, of the state would be damaged. So that's what privilege would be and mm. has been recognised. But to merely claim that, you know, the existence of a tracker without any information does seem mm. a harder sell, maybe. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if it's a sustainable argument going forward. And of course, what you're talking about, the privilege, that did come up when the National Surveillance Unit's officers um, when, you know, on their behalf, it was asked that they could give evidence anonymously and the court ruled with them. Of course, they could give evidence anonymously because it's in the greater interest of the state to keep those individuals safe and to make sure they can continue their work. 
um, against organised crime. But it's it'll be, you know, it, it's going to be something. I'm certainly going to have a good listen into it because it's a bit of a bugbear of mine anyway. Um, I think sometimes that there's this very antiquated view within uh, certain management structures within the guards that uh, nobody knows that this stuff is going on. I mean, it, it, it is in every police drama, every criminal knows uh, that they can be bugged and listened into, etc. And it's just modern policing. And, and I mean... Of course, like the legislation is there to allow them to bug and listen into people. Um, mm. And we've heard cases, um, you know, feud related cases as well, where people have, there's bug device have, have been heard. So the mere existence of it is is no news to anybody. Mm, mm. But they are claiming a very broad privilege here, and that's probably because of the units that are involved. So we'll see. It's it's certainly yeah. if you look at you can see where the defense are gonna maybe look at lines to 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 bring in to defend our client, I suppose, and that's clearly gonna be one of them. That's clearly one of them. It's one it's one of them they've certainly um told the court they will do. Now Moving on to the evidence that has been heard against uh, Paul Murphy and Jason Bonney. The lesser lights in this trial, really, because uh, obviously the, the star of the, the show is Jerry the Monk Hutch. And that's who a lot of the members of the public are coming in to have a look at and all the rest of it. And he is the big the big name that's there in the dock. But nonetheless, these two are beside him. They're charged with... Um, Involvement in the murder, in as they 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 uh, the state says they they uh, provided vehicles um, to help the hit team basically get away after the murder. Uh, so there's been evidence heard and seen on CCTV about their vehicles. Paul Murphy drives this Toyota Avensis, and Bonnie drives this black BMW. We've seen the cars moving around on CCTV, etc. Now this week the they were discussing when they were arrested and when their their phones and their cars were seized. And there was a mention with, uh, it just showed me really, it brought me back, I suppose, to the fear that surrounded that time after the Regency Hotel attack, because there was this absolutely enormous threat coming from the Kinahan organised crime group, so powerful at the time, so vast. Uh, and this was a group that had imploded that knew everything about its enemies because its enemies had once been together working with them. So that was created the situation being even more dangerous and volatile in Dublin. But in the case of Paul Murphy, a detective guard of William Armstrong, now retired, who was then working for the, the Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau, he was giving evidence how on the 19th of February he was on duty in swords and he went with the now deceased detective guard of PJ Carey, also from the... The, the Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau, they went to Murphy's house um, and there they found his events and they towed it away. But he said that when they sort of basically identified themselves to Murphy, he blessed himself uh, himself and said, thank God, when they said they were guardy. Now, there was no actual evidence given, but you can only imagine the scenario that he didn't know who was coming um, for him at that time. Now, Jason Bonney, the information or the evidence given was even more detailed about the GIM form, the Garda information message he was issued with. Um, he was spoken to first on the 21st of February, just weeks after the attack, uh, when Gardy went to Drimna Woods, where he was living, and spoke with him 
and his wife, apparently they went into the kitchen, they stayed for 20 or 30 minutes and they carried out this Q&A kind of uh, chat with him, which they they kept the details of in a memo, but he refused to sign that memo when it uh, came up, uh, when they were leaving, basically. So on the 27th of May, 2016, he was arrested at another property, 47 Newbrook Avenue in Donamede. And that seems to be a second property he owns. He, he talked about how, when he was being questioned, uh, that he had these two properties. Drimna Wood, he said, had pyrite in it and needed sort of repairs done on it. And New, Newbrook Avenue <clears throat> was a property he'd bought and he was sort of refurbishing it, doing it up. So um, that morning he was arrested at 7.20 a.m., the door was opened by his partner, Kate, and she told the guardie that he was upstairs in bed. They went up to the bedroom to him and he asked them just for a little bit of time to work out some wages that he wanted to pay his workers before going to Ballymun Garda Station. So it's quite interesting, actually, because it brings us back to the boxing, you know, and to some of the big boxing names that have come up in the the trial. I was trying to remember, when was Frank Warren mentioned? Was that in the opening statement? Frank Warren was mentioned in the opening statement. His, well, his company, Queensbury Productions, um, yeah. but they were, they they were the, the people behind the clash of the clans. Uh, Daniel Kinnan obviously was That's managing right. some of the fighters there, but it was, it was Queensbury, Frank Warren's company that put on the actual event uh, in the Regency Hotel or were due, were due to put on the event, the, the boxing fight and the, the weigh-in was there. Yeah, because you can imagine, like, it's not too comfortable being named during this trial, no, you know, no. or whatever. But nonetheless, I'll tell you a little bit about Bonnie, right? So Bonnie was born in 1970. Now, that raised a few heads, I have to say, in the courtroom, because he does look that little bit older than that. Um, now, having said that, the evidence was that he has a heart condition. He had a heart attack in 2013. He takes four tablets in the morning, four in the afternoon, and three at night. The reason that came out was because when somebody is arrested and brought to a guard station, if they've any health conditions, a doctor is brought and they basically, you know, will liaise with them over the course of their time in custody. So his blood pressure was checked when he was arrested. It was very high, but he said to the guards he was feeling okay. Um, he told them that he was a man who'd worked all his life. He'd started working at 18. He'd earned everything he had. He was a family man. He said he had these two homes, one at Drimna Woods and one at... at um, Dunamid. Um, he said that around the 5th of February, he was moving between both of these homes. He was working on both of them, like he had these sort of like plumbers and builders, etc. in, and he was, you know, going over and back. Um, now, he gave a detailed statement to some guardie about where he was at particular times during the day. And it, during this arrest, he didn't go back over that. He kind of kept relying on it and saying to them, I don't want to go through it again in case, you know, I make a mistake. You know, what I said to you the first time, I will will stand by, basically. So he said his father owned a company called Bonnie Construction and he'd worked for him for a long time, but then he went out on his own. And his regular day was to get up at 7.30 a.m. Because of this health conditions he had, he couldn't go out to work as such as much anymore. So he kind of stayed home and he went through his emails, he organised the supplies and he operated as a sort of foreman um, on, on sites where he had people working for him. He didn't seem to do the heavy work anymore. He said he was a, he liked to spend time with his two-year-old grandson. Now, at the time of his arrest, he told the, the guardie that his son, Greg, who was a boxer, had just moved to Australia because of this guard information message. Now, 
these Garda information messages were given out like confetti after 2016. And of course, Bonnie and and Mr. Murphy, like neither of them would have been in the media at the time. Obviously, certain members of the Hutch family were being regularly pictured, but these two guys weren't. But there was, a, as you said, there was a, a wide net of people who are who are who are contacted and warned that they wouldn't have been told necessarily that the Kinnan cartel were were the people behind the threat. But everybody, the Gardaí routinely, if they receive information or intelligence that anybody's life is under threat, they have to, as a matter of obligation, go to them and say, "There, we we've received information. There's a threat against your life," and they do that. In, in nearly all cases, like they have to do it. So Mr. Bonnie obviously received one of them. He did. And, and what they do is they come to the house and they give this document which states on it that there's a, you know, a viable threat to your life. They don't tell anybody who is threatening them because I suppose if they were dealing with criminals, they would be afraid the criminal would go down and shoot whoever was going to shoot them. So get them first, you know. So that's kind of the logic behind that. There is a logic, I suppose, there. But uh, nonetheless, Bonnie would have known exactly where the threat was coming from. And in actual fact, he told the guardy under his arrest that he was getting these phone calls at night on his phone. The phone was going, you know, nonstop. And that he was being told that there was... He was under threat from the Kinahan cartel. But he was kind of kicking that back in the interview to the Gardaí and he was saying it was their fault he got this gym form. It was nothing to do with him, that he actually had no, that the Kinahan cartel could have no beef with him, that he was no threat to them. He said that he was friendly with Matthew Macklin, uh, who I think at that point had retired, hadn't he? He had retired as a as a boxer. Yeah. Um, like obviously Matthew Macklin is... Uh, probably was the way in which Daniel Kinnan became involved in a, in a real way in the boxing world. Even back in 2010, Matthew Macklin would have been friendly with the with Daniel Kinnan. Um, he would have obviously become a founder of MGM Marbella with the two the two, the two men would have been. And Matthew Macklin was regularly back in, 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 in Dublin. Obviously, we've heard that again and again. He was, for example, at one point in the House in Coldwater Lakes that has been recently seized by Cab, saying that it was owned by Daniel Kinnan. Matthew Macklin was found there. So obviously, there's there, he's particularly tied in with, with all of that boxing world, but also with the associated people surrounding the Kinnan cartel. Is Macklin still a pundit, by the way, on Sky? Matthew Macklin is still a pundit on Sky. Um, and he... Unlike some people, he seems to have managed to get into the US and continue his work as a pundit there. Matthew in Mac- recent times, in recent times, um, Matthew Macklin's ties with with, with Daniel Kinnan stopped somewhere after the Regency, as far as as far as we know. Up until a certain point, they were regularly photographed on social media together. You know, Daniel Kinnan described him as his best friend in in a famous interview with a boxing magazine that ignored all the other uh, stuff surrounding Mr. Kinnan. So, uh, but at some point, they, they, there does seem to have been a, a you know a parting of the ways. But if you remember, even back in two thousand and ten, we had pictures of people at at a Matthew Macklin fight, a, a gangland summit. Um, where Christy mm. Kinahan Sr. had brought all a number of Ireland's most notorious gangland criminals to see a Matthew Macklin fight. So there were there was ties going back, not criminal ties, but just 
ties, personal ties, boxing ties, going back a long time. He's obviously very highly regarded now, really. You know, if Sky have continued, I mean, he is, he was, and admitted that he was a co-founder of MGM with Daniel Kinahan. That company went on to become MTK. Um, he, obviously, a lot of the boxers haven't been allowed into the US, but he doesn't seem to have had any uh, bother with his connections with Kinahan at all. No, he, I mean, he's a good commentator. He's a, he's a good media performer. Um, but it is unusual. And of course, he, he probably profited from that grey area that existed for a long time on Sky and other broadcasters where we would have seen that the Kinnahans were making the news, the Kinnahan mm. cartel were making the news, but the boxing the boxing world sort of managed to just ignore that and, and just continue on as normal with, with so Bonnie says that he was um, so friendly, actually, with Matthew Macklin that he, he got a personal invite to the Regency Hotel, but he didn't bother going. He said, not the Regency Hotel, but to the, the weigh-in and the, the boxing event, Clash of the Clans. He said Macklin actually invited him to that, but he didn't go. He said his, his son, Greg, is a seven-time EU bronze medalist. I don't know where he's at now in the boxing, but uh, he did a degree in architecture, but he again accused the police. He said he couldn't work anymore because they took his laptop, obviously, when they seized the phone and the car there at the house. Um, he went on to say, basically, he spoke quite openly at the beginning of the interview about his family and his son and his wife and that. And then he kind of seems to have taken a break and he came back and he said he didn't really want to go into his business or his family life because he was afraid for them. He said... Um, he again blamed the guardie on the fact that he got this gym form and he said it was their fault because they came to his house and questioned him and took his jeep off him and like he had done nothing wrong basically, but they had put him in the line of fire. Um, let me see what else he said. Yeah, he spoke a lot about his own boxing career. He seemed to have been prominent enough in boxing. He 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 fought or he coached in Corinthians in the late 1990s? Yes, which would have been a, a very well-known amateur boxing club um, and where Jerry Hutch also would have had uh, ties to that boxing club, would have coached, as far as I remember, at that boxing club himself and would have been involved. So that that, that is another connection there, a boxing connection. He also uh, spoke about his uh, connection with Declan Geraghty, who... Uh, Pretty boy, Declan Geraghty, as he was called, he was again one of the first Irish fighters signed by MGM Marbella, as it was known at the time. He was a, a, a good professional boxer and he was one of the first into the stable and, and became mm. very high profile within that. Um, uh, so he that was maybe, he was there at the beginning when MGM Marbella, as you remember, all of a sudden went from being a tiny, tiny outfit. All of a sudden they were signing this, this wave of fighters, starting with a wave of Irish fighters and then moving into the UK. And Declan Geraghty would have been one of the first fighters that they they did sign. Mm -hmm. So, he, yeah, and he said that he actually brought Geraghty's father, Declan Geraghty Sr., I think, out to MGM in Spain, as far as I could gather. Um, he went out there with him, sort of introduce him, I think, to them, to Macklin. Uh, he said he went to school with Gary Finnegan, who is a close associate, obviously, of Daniel Kinahan's, and with Ross Browning, who is a criminal assets bureau target and uh, is seen as one of the senior lieutenants and maybe the top lieutenant left here in in Ireland of the, the, the Kinahan mafia. Um, so those connections are all there, but, you know, it sort of just is a reminder about how everybody knew each other. Now, Bonnie is obviously pleading not guilty to any involvement in criminality, but it just shows how everybody... <laughs> 
Dublin's such a small town, isn't it's, it? It's such a small town, and obviously uh, Ross Browning and Gary Finnegan will be really people that are very much trusted by Daniel Kinnahan, but Ross Browning and, and Gary and Gary Finnegan, their best, their little core group of best friends from childhood would have included Gary Hutch, uh, Jerry Hutch's nephew, yeah. obviously. So that that just shows you how these these people. Yeah, as you said, the ties are going back decades, not just years. Mm. And I suppose that's the kind of the more personal end of it, which doesn't really have anything to do with the doesn't have anything you know, to do with the, the criminal bolts of the criminal charge. You know, no. because ultimately that's all about the car, the BMW X5, um, and any views of him beside the car or out of it. Uh, you know, they did go into. This car seemed to have been registered to the father's business, but he started driving it some years previous. He admits that he's the only driver of it, certainly that day, and that while other people may drive it on and off, he's really the main guy driving it. His wife seems to have a Range Rover car that's brought up as well. But uh, that's kind of where nearly as far as we got to and there was going to be submissions and a bit of legal argument today. So Alison's going to keep an eye on that if there's anything of interest yes. tomorrow. So the case, the case against Bonnie and, and Mr. Murphy, they're all going to be focused on the movement of cars and what they're caught on CCTV. Obviously, as you said, Mr. Bonnie being involved in boxing and knowing people around, he would have been one of hundreds, maybe thousands of people who would have been involved in boxing and would have known some of the characters that came in and out. But the case will stand and fall on the the on on the admissibility of, or not the admissibility, but the, the, the evidence that is put together by the state in terms of the movement of the cars. So, yeah. So look, as I said, there's a lot coming out and sometimes it feels it's kind of moving slowly that the, the big event is still to come, which it has, of course. But all those pieces of evidence really are coming together to form a very clear picture on what the state is saying, that there was a lot of activity. I should have said to you, actually, Paul Murphy, part of the uh, stuff put to him during the rest was that his Toyota Vences was around Buckingham Village area a number of times in the morning of the 5th. It was there between 12 and half 12 at coming up to one o'clock. Uh, the state says three vehicles left Buckingham Village in convoy. Paul Murphy's taxi was part of that. The transit van, the events and the BMW, they say, was driven by Bonnie. Um, at 1.15pm that day, Paul Murphy, they say, was spotted at the Maxall service station on the Hoth Road. And at 1.22pm, he was spotted outside the Beachcomber pub. Um, the state then say that at 145 the cars are in convoy again at St. Vincent's GAA Club, where they say Murphy and Bonnie waited to pick up the gunmen as they abandoned the van and set fire to it. Um, there was a swipe card for Buckingham Village. It must be a car park or something at Buckingham Village yeah. that they said was found in his car. And it was one digit away from one found in the possession of Patsy Hutch. Um, they said also that receipts from his taxi on the day don't match the times he was caught on CCTV. So, oh, and actually, interestingly, because we've heard no mobile phone evidence throughout the trial as regards what was going on uh, during the the that time that the, the shooting was happening, it's it, the, the court heard yesterday that uh, Paul Murphy's mobile phone was turned off between 1.20pm and 3pm that day. And the, the state said that that was very unusual. Yeah. 
yeah, so we're not going to hear maybe, but I suppose even the absence of evidence becomes becomes something that yeah. the state is, 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 is admitting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the absence of those phones being turned off are kind of going to be yeah. used as evidence in the same way as if the phones were turned on. Yeah, yeah. You can't win with a phone, really, can you? You can't. No, no. It's a, it's yeah. a constant tracking device one way or the other. If you're the most yeah. boring man in Europe, that's okay, Nicola, because nothing happens to you. But. but indeed, absolutely. Except the most boring man in Europe does have his lunch, as does everybody else. <laughs> and uh, I was noticing yesterday in the courts that um, Bonnie and Murphy uh, had their sandwiches in with them and they went and sat down and had their their lunch there in the it's it's a bizarre situation it is bizarre really, really, it, around. it really struck me like you know because if you consider the, the level of security and all of the the heightened tensions but they do just float in and out of the court and hold the doors open and for everyone has sort of goes and has a lunch or a coffee yeah, yeah. together on the little, because there is only one sort of cafeteria. I mean, I'm talking about the family of David Byrne, his mother and, and sisters who are there nearly every day. And then obviously these the two yeah. accused and then ourselves, the journalists who are persona non grata as well. So we're all sort of floating around, all, all sort of tr- trying not to make eye contact. <laughs> all thrown together. Exactly. Maybe getting used to one another's company in a way. But anyway, so right for the moment, we might come back to it later in the week if there's enough there. So welcome back. And I'm sure you've loads of work to do. Thanks very much. Hello. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from Sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Clodamini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.